and you first through third grade kids are going to have to stay here and listen to me. I hope you have your Bibles with you and that you will turn in them to John chapter 8, the passage from which John just read to us, a different John, but fitting that a John read from John for us this morning. And if you are using one of the Bibles that are provided for you in the backs of the chairs, hopefully one of those would serve you. You'll find this passage on page 894 and 5. 894, 895 is where you'll find this passage. And if one of those Bibles would serve you and bless you, please feel free to take it home. If you know someone who could benefit from one, please take it and give it to them. Now, I'm guessing that as you're thinking of an Advent or Christmas sermon series, you're not imagining a passage where Jesus says to people, you are of your father the devil, and where he talks about lies and murder and people wanting to throw stones at him. Perhaps it doesn't feel quite as Christmassy as uh, the, the familiar and beautiful narratives of Luke 2 and some of the uh, servant songs of the prophet Isaiah. But in reality, at the heart of the advent of Jesus or the arrival, the coming of Jesus and the message of that advent, at the heart of it is a message that is confrontational, that is to many offensive And to some, even such as the Jews at the end of the passage that John just read for us, scandalous. In our first series sermon last week, our Advent series, we looked at a call from the Father from a voice in the cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration to listen to Jesus because He is God's beloved Son. And I believe the words in this text just read for us a moment ago are some of the most startling words from Jesus in all the Gospels and have a message somewhat similar to our first series sermon in this, our second Advent Advent sermon series sermon. These are words that to their original hearers and to modern readers are confrontational and offensive. They're words that were spoken originally to people who held their own theological and doctrinal knowledge in very high esteem, They assumed that their knowledge and experience and track record of personal pursuits of holiness and spirituality and pursuits of the truth made them judges over this troublemaker from the lowly town of Nazareth named Jesus. And his words, therefore, cut deeply into these people's hearts, revealing and exposing their lack of understanding, including their lack of uh, a real relationship with God, indicting them for that, claiming even towards the end of this passage here to have a divine nature that then leads, leads to their desire to throw stones and perhaps even kill him. But all of these words in this section, this long passage from John's gospel lead me to this one call for us this Christmas, and it's the call to embrace Jesus Christ. Last week, the call was to listen. This week, the call is, after having heard him, to embrace him. This morning, I'd like to focus on several statements from Jesus in this passage that I see as four reasons to embrace Christ. So let's take a, a, a bird's eye view of the passage in summary first. Some of the Jews are in a discussion with Jesus. They wind up talking about how Abraham is their ethnic father and that God is their heavenly father, but Jesus doesn't buy it and he calls them out. And he says that if they were truly children of their heavenly father, they would embrace 
Him, Jesus, says that in verse 42. Then he takes it further and says that not only is God not their father like they say he is, but their father's actually the devil, and their works show that allegiance to him. He says that the fact that they're not believing what he, Jesus, says, and the fact that they're arguing with him shows that they haven't embraced God or his word. He says that in verses 46 through 47. And of course, the Jews don't like hearing this. They accuse him of being either possessed by a demon or a traitor to the Jewish nation. And Jesus responds by essentially saying in verses 49 through 51, your judgment of me doesn't matter. I'm not worried about what you think about me. I care about what my father thinks. And in fact, the father will judge those who don't embrace me. So now they're upset that it sounds like Jesus is saying he is to be taken as being above Abraham, the father of their nation. And of course, it's true. But a Jew hearing things like this, a man from Nazareth saying that he is above Abraham would be kind of like an American today hearing someone stand in judgment over the character and convictions of our nation's founding fathers. This happens in verse 53 here, where they say, are you greater than our father Abraham? But then Jesus assures them that he has no need to pursue glory for himself because the Father is doing that. The Father is glorifying him. He says in verse 56 these things. He says essentially, Abraham, whom you revere and love, actually looked forward to me reigning and ruling and being glorified. So apparently Jesus is saying something we won't get into too deeply here today, but something amazing, which is that Abraham had a kind of inside scoop on the redemptive plan of God through the Christ, through the Messiah. Well, the Jews don't like this either. And in verse 57, they basically say, yeah, right, okay, you've talked to Abraham, sure. And then the climax of this whole passage, verse 58, which really is the whole reason I want to preach this passage this Christmas is this. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And that throws them into a tizzy. Because, as we'll see in a moment, to say I am in this way was to lay claim to the name of God himself. So that's the gist of the passage. And I believe it leads us to a call on our lives as we consider throughout this Advent season the supremacy of Christ and this Christmas. A call to embrace Christ. And as I said, I see at least four reasons to heed this call in this passage. First of all, to embrace Christ because He was sent by the Father. Second, because the Father will judge those who don't embrace Him. Third, because the Father glorifies Christ. And fourth, because Christ even claims to be equal with the Father. The discussion that Jesus and the Jews were having is in the context that goes actually all the way back to chapter 7. Of course, we didn't read all of chapter 7 and then all the way through chapter 8 for the sake of time. But, but in this context, Jesus is teaching at the temple during the Feast of Booths. And he is saying that he's saying things that are perplexing and confusing and even upsetting to some of the Jews. The Pharisees are very displeased, as they often were with Jesus. They're rebutting him. They're taking issue with what he's saying. We read along the way that some are becoming motivated to kill him, even this early on. But we also see that it's a mixed group because the end, the very end of chapter seven says that there was division over him. Some wanted to embrace him. Some wanted to reject him. His message was divisive. Some believed, some rejected him, 
But as this controversy is unfolding, John repeatedly comes back to a theme that he wants his readers to see, which is that Jesus is to be embraced. And so the first of these four reasons that I see in this passage to embrace Jesus Christ is, first of all, that he was sent by the Father. Embrace Christ because he is the sent one of God. Our passage in in verse 42 begins where the controversy is sort of beginning to really build to a head where he is rebutting their claims to Abrahamic lineage and being related to their heavenly father. People are divided to what they think about him. Jewish, Jewish leaders are starting to hate him. Some are believing. Some are arguing that even though Jesus accused those of all who reject him of being related spiritually to the devil, the ultimate enemy of God, they're saying, hey, the devil's not our father. God is. But Jesus' response is, if you are children of God, see that in verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. If you were children of God, you would embrace me, he says. It's quite a thing to say, isn't it? No wonder he's such a divisive figure. But as to this, our first reason to embrace him, it's exactly what Jesus says in the second part of verse 42. He says, for I came from God. You would love me because I have come from God. I'm not sent of my own accord. He sent me. So Jesus' reason to embrace him is because I have been sent by the Father. You know, it strikes me that this time of year, Christians are pretty good at giving thanks to Jesus for coming to earth as a baby to live and then to grow up and die on a cross for our sins. And we should give thanks to Jesus for that. But let's not forget to explicitly give thanks to the Father for sending him. It wasn't a conversation in heaven where Jesus says, hey, you know, I have an idea. How about I go and save these people? No, the Father evidently said to Jesus, go. And Jesus said, I will. And so this is one of the main reasons to embrace Jesus. He is sent from God. He is sent from the creator of the universe, the ruler of heaven and earth. And so Jesus, therefore, is the fulfillment of the prophecies that said that a sent one would come to save the people of God. He is the fulfillment of every longing in the hearts of God's people that God would deliver them in this life and in the next. He is the messenger of God. He is the representative of God. And even as we saw last week in Luke's gospel, he is the word of God. And John says that himself in the very beginning of his gospel. And in fact, if you notice, Jesus actually implies this I'm God's word thing in verses 43 through 47. He is essentially saying here that his words are on even ground with the words of God. And of course, that's all connected to what he's saying about being sent from God. He is God's word. Do you see this? You don't understand what I say in verse 43 because you cannot bear to hear my word. And he skipped down to to verse 45. I tell the truth. Verse 46. If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them, these words of mine, is that you are not of God. So see if you can follow the flow of thought. In verse 42, he's saying you should love me, not reject me, because God sent me. 
In verse 43, he says, you don't understand what I'm saying because you don't like it. In verse 44, he says, the reason is because you're acting like the devil. Verse 45, you don't believe what I'm saying. Verse 46, even though you have no evidence that I'm doing anything wrong. And then here it is in verse 47, but you should believe God's words and you would believe God's words if you were his. So, so the logic here is you don't believe my words, but you should believe God's words. He's paralleling his words with the words of God. And so Christ is sent by the Father. He is God's messenger. He is God's chosen servant. He is the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one come to take on human flesh, to live perfectly, to die as a sacrificial atonement for sin, and then to rise from the dead three days later. And so, friends, don't reject what he says. Don't reject who he is. Embrace him. Believe him. Because what he says is God's word. What he has come to do is God's mission. The creator, the king of the universe, has spoken most clearly through his son, the son, God the son, Jesus Christ. So embrace him. The second reason is that the father judges those who reject Christ. And this is sobering. You see this in verses 50 through 51 taking place after what happened just previously that we studied. Jesus says these things about being sent from God. They basically accuse him of being either possessed by a demon or a Jewish traitor because Jesus had just told them that their unbelief in him revealed that their realist father was the devil. And so basically they go, how dare you cast aspersions on our Jewish paternal heritage and allegiance? Those are not the words of a faithful Jew. Those are the words of a traitor or a demon. Interestingly, this is the only time recorded in any of the Gospels that Jesus is called a Samaritan. You see that? Verse 48, you are a Samaritan and have a demon. It's the first time, only time that we see Jesus called a Samaritan. And, and that would have been no light charge to make in this context because the Jews hated Samaritans and vice versa. And we know something about ethnic disunity and disharmony in our own culture. But this is about as bad as it gets between Jews and Samaritans. Jesus goes on to deny their accusation. He says that what he's doing is not uh, dishonoring to the Father. He is honoring his Father, verse 50, or 49. I do not have a demon. I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. He says that he's trusting his father who is the judge. And he says that that same father is seeking to glorify him. He doesn't care if they call him uh, a Samaritan or charge him of being, with being demon-possessed. Whatever they say about him, it doesn't matter because he's not in it for his own glory. He's not worried about what they say about him. He cares about honoring his father. His father is glorifying him. We'll see that a little further in a moment here. The Father is shining the light on Jesus, so to speak. He is making Him the center of attention. But the point of these couple verses here is that Jesus isn't worried about their accusations because it's what the Father thinks of Him that matters to Him the most. And what the Father thinks is that He wants to glorify Him. And so, ultimately, Jesus is unfazed 
by their harsh words and accusations because God is the judge, not them. That's exactly what Peter meant in his first letter in chapter 2, verse 23, when he says of Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so embrace Christ because the Father will judge those who reject him. He is the judge, Jesus says in verse 50. I think there are a couple important implications here. One is actually for those who are already Christians, who have turned to Jesus in faith for salvation. And there's another for non-Christians that perhaps is a little more obvious. But the one to Christians is this. Friends, Jesus knew and acted like his Father's approval outweighed the approval of the people around him. And as people of Christ... Christians, those whose identity has been transformed by Jesus, whose, whose identity is now united to Jesus, of whom it is said by the Apostle Paul that they have been raised with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in the book of Ephesians, then, then shouldn't we, like Jesus, as little Christs, care more about the approval of our Heavenly Father than of our earthly peers and yes, of course, I believe, we, we talk about this with our kids a lot, the Bible says that a good reputation is a good thing. So we should care in a sense about what people think. We should have a good reputation in good ways. Be known as a person of love, as a person of good works, as a person of righteousness and kindness and all the things that the Scriptures call us to. But in the end, somewhere along the way, if you're truly a follower of Jesus and doing the same kinds of things and saying the same kinds of things that Jesus said, you're going to face opposition. You're going to become someone's enemy because of your identity in Christ. And it is in that moment that you need to know and care most about what God thinks of you, not what everyone else thinks. I've always had such a hard time with this ever since I was a kid. People-pleasing, perhaps one of my besetting sins, you might know it as the fear of man. And the Lord has been graciously pruning some of those dead branches off of me, especially over the last couple of years, but it is still a struggle, and so I get it. It is hard to not care as much about what other people think than we do about what God thinks. But preach the gospel to yourself, my friends, and look to Jesus as the one in whom your identity lies and in whom and to God in whom you are eternally accepted and treasured and cherished because of your union with him. And so, like Jesus, entrust yourself to the one who judges justly, knowing that even when your allegiance to Jesus and your alignment with his person and his nature and his work makes you have enemies in this world, you can trust him. Now, I think the application to non-Christians might be a little more obvious. And it's very sobering. And it is that if you ultimately reject Jesus, you will face God as judge. He, according to the text in front of us today, He, the Father, wants Jesus glorified. And God gets what He wants. And so, if 
you embrace Jesus or not doesn't change whether or not the Father's going to glorify Jesus. In fact, He already has glorified Jesus. He is glorifying Jesus. He will continue to glorify the Son whom He loves for all eternity, long after you and I are dead and gone. And so if you don't embrace Jesus and instead reject the Christ, you are facing an eternity with the Father opposed to you. Because He is more pro-Jesus than anyone else has ever been. And if you are anti-Jesus, anti-the Christ, you are going up against God. And so the call to you, if you've never embraced Christ in saving faith, is please embrace Jesus today. Because the Father will ultimately judge you if you don't. Among other reasons. To not embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord is ultimately to reject Him. And, and you can be, I suppose, on the fence for a little while about Jesus, but eventually you're going to have to get off that fence and respond one way or another, either ultimately rejecting or embracing Him. So, embrace Christ because the Father judges those who reject Him. The third reason is embrace Christ because the Father glorifies Christ. We've mentioned this a little bit already. He said it in the verses we just looked at in verse 50. I don't seek my own glory. The one who seeks it is the judge. But in verse 54, he says it even more plainly. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. He says it very plainly here. And as this passage, this, this little narrative is progressing, the Jews are getting closer and closer to just totally losing their minds and collectively wanting to kill him because of what he's saying. And here, Jesus just keeps going. Starts in verse 51 and keeps going. He says that not only are his words God's words, but anyone who follows his words will never die. So he's claiming to have the power to give or withhold eternal life. To give eternal life to those who do what he says. And so it's no surprise that the Jews don't like this any more than they liked anything else he has said and retort sharply in these passages, aha, that's proof that you're crazy. How could you say that you're greater than Abraham and the prophets who died? Gotcha. Who exactly do you think you are? But Jesus doesn't back down. And in verse 54, essentially says, I'm not in this for my own glory. The Father is glorifying me. You say that the Father is your God, but you're not on the same page as he is. He wants to glorify me. In fact, Abraham, whom you claim to love so much, loves the idea of me being glorified. It says that in verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So apparently, Jesus is saying something very interesting about Abraham having a kind of inside scoop on the plan of redemption. If I was doing a slow walk through the book of John, we would park here and examine this further, but we're not doing that today. The, the basic gist is we don't know exactly how this all happened and what all this looked like. But the point here that Jesus is making is they didn't get to use Abraham as a weapon against his message because even Abraham is on his team. Regardless of Abraham, it's clear the Father wants to glorify Christ. He wants Christ at the center of attention. He wants Christ to get praise and honor and spotlight. That, that's what glory essentially is. You can think of a spotlight shining 
so that all the beauty and majesty and detail of the person in that spotlight is clearly to be seen. This is the time of year when you may go to a, a show of some kind, perhaps a, a theatrical production or a musical production. We've been to a couple so far this, this Christmas season. We went to see the poppy kids in their play recently, and there was more than one time when all the other lights go down, the spotlight shines on the one person in the middle of the stage doing a narrative or a song or something of that nature so that all the attention is simply on that one. And that's what God wants for Christ. Their relationship, the father and son's relationship, is centered in a mutual delight for one another that sees the father glorifying and cherishing the son and the son glorifying and doing the will of his father. And so no matter what the Jews throw at him by way of opposition or rebuttal or argumentation, he just keeps going back to his relationship with his father, resting on what his father thinks of him and what he wants from him. And if it rocks the boat with the Jews, so be it. If it leads to a life of want and poverty and opposition for him, as it did, so be it. And even if it led to a death on a Roman cross, then so be it. And it did lead to death on the cross. The cross where the sins of everyone who trusts in him are paid for and dealt with forever. A cross where the perfect, spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world hung and died. But it also didn't end at that cross because the Father wants to glorify His Son. He is so committed to the glorification of Jesus that He raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus was buried. He lay in the grave for three days. I know it's not Easter, it's Christmas, but we're doing this anyway. And then he rose. So this lowly, manger-born baby boy eventually grew up to be the glorious and glorified hope of all the world. And so the Father glorifies Christ and we should embrace Him. And the fact that the Father glorifies Christ means at least two things for us today. Of course, the first is just the call to embrace Him because the Father is in the business of glorifying Him. And if God is all about something, then it's a good idea that we be all about it too. And so embrace Christ because He is the object of God's glorification. But there's another thing that this means for us. It's hope. Because, my friends, the Scriptures also teach that because of being united to Christ through faith, you too have the hope of being raised with Him and spending eternity with Him. And so because the Father is interested in glorifying Jesus, that's good news for us. Because then, if we're united to Jesus, there's a sense in which we too are glorified. Is that mind-blowing or what? To be united with Christ in His life, death, and resurrection through faith means that one day we too are raised with Him. That's good news at Christmas. The lowly born baby boy raised from the dead, now reigning as the King of the universe, and through faith in Him, you can spend eternity at His side with Him in glory forever. What better news could there possibly be? 
The fourth reason to embrace Christ in our passage today is this, that Christ is equal with the Father. And this is the big one. It's the core claim of Jesus in this passage that everyone must come to terms with as they consider whether or not they are going to embrace Christ as Lord and Savior like every true Christian or reject Him as just a troublemaker from the lowly town of Nazareth like the Jews did. As I said earlier, this verse is the whole reason behind my desire to preach this passage, this Advent We talked as elders about doing something a little different from our Matthew study in our Advent season and loved the idea of considering the supremacy of Christ together at Christmas. And this passage came to mind. Verse 58. Actually, let's let's, uh, go to 57 because it's right after 56 where he said, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And the Jews say in verse 57, you're not even 50 years old yet. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So much of what Jesus had already said was already confrontational and controversial. But this is next level stuff. It's a simple enough phrase in terms of number of words and ease of grammar and simplicity of spelling and whatever else, but it is a loaded, loaded phrase. Back in the second book of the Bible, which is called Exodus, God called Moses to be his instrument of redemption for his chosen people, Israel. Redemption from slavery and oppression in the land of Egypt. And at first, you may or may not recall, Moses was not a big fan of this plan. He didn't like talking in front of people. He didn't want to lead anyone. He wasn't particularly interested in going back to Egypt where he grew up and had made some enemies. But God commands Moses to go. And he and Moses are having this kind of discussion or argument. And Moses says, what am I supposed to say to the people when I show up and say I'm going to lead you out of Egypt? Who should I say sent me on this mission? And God says, tell them I am has sent me. In other words, God was telling Moses, my name is I am. You can find all of this in Exodus chapter 3. We're not going to go there right now. But fast forward hundreds of years later, the Jewish people knew this story. It was central to their belief. The Exodus was and continues to be the primary redemptive event in the Old Testament. And so they're very familiar with this story. They're very familiar with the fact that God identifies himself as I am. And that God had said that his name was to be revered, treated as holy, and never taken lightly. So this would not have been something that was thrown around by the people of God willy-nilly. And so when Jesus said these words in verse 58, he was doing something very purposefully. And of course, you could, you could see that part of what Jesus is doing is identifying his eternality Before Abraham was, I am, I always have been, I always will be. Certainly, you can see that there. But he could have, if that's all he wanted to get across, he could have said in response to the Jews, before Abraham was, I was. That would have been appropriate. would have made perfect sense with what he's saying. I'm greater than Abraham. I was there when he was there. In fact, I existed long before he did. That would have been fine to say. 
And so when they say in verse 57, okay, right, yeah, you've talked to Abraham, I'll play along. You're not even 50 years old yet. Abraham's been dead for centuries. Jesus could have easily said, but I have existed ever since before Abraham. It would have been perfectly true. It would have hit hard. Might have even made them mad. But that's not what he says. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Which is clearly, therefore, a reference to the name of God and a claim to be equal with God. And so this was a most startling and scandalous claim. But do you see that he actually says before this phrase, he uses a word twice. Truly, truly, I say to you. Those words, truly, truly, when you see them together, you might see them in other, uh, like an older translation, verily, verily. When you see these words put together before something, and by the way, he said it earlier in the passage too, you'll see him do this from time to time. It's adding more weight, if that's possible, to what he's saying. It's the translation of a word used twice here, used twice in the original, uh, in the original texts to communicate seriousness and a kind of, if I could put it this way, a pre-amen to what he's saying. It is an expression of authority. It is an expression of certainty. It can be an expression of agreement. In fact, the word translated here for us truly was just like the kinds of thing that we say at the end of our prayers. Amen. Kind of a, 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 a voiced confidence and even agreement if you say amen along with someone who says amen after a prayer. But Jesus starts with it here. And he does that other times as well throughout the Gospels as a statement to indicate at a particular moment that he wants his hearers to pay careful attention to what he's about to say. So he says, listen carefully, I am. It's no accident that he uses these words. He is saying this very purposefully. He wants them to listen closely and receive what he's saying with agreement. And of course, tragically, they do not. Verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him. Perhaps an attempt to kill him. They reach their breaking point in this narrative, as I said, goes, goes all the way back to a previous chapter in this long discussion of back and forth argumentation and debate. They've reached their breaking point. They pick up stones to stone him and the, he leaves, he escapes. But friends, this is the matter of utmost importance in this text. If we're asking ourselves, why should we embrace Christ this Christmas. Or maybe you're here today saying, why should I even care about this at all? It's because he is God himself. In the beginning was God. In the beginning was Christ. Christ was with God. Christ was and is God. He always has been God. He is God now and he will forever be God. And so he is the ruler of the universe. He is the second person of the three-in-one triune God. He is the one to whom all glory and honor is due. He is the one that all people everywhere are called to worship. He is the one that all people everywhere will one day have to acknowledge, either through embracing him or under judgment by him. There are many... So many would-be 
competitors to Christ. All the time, but including in this special time of year. Competitors, so to speak, who would beckon you to come to them for joy, to come to them for hope and for peace and for love. But my friends, they are not contenders. They are pretenders. There is only one person. There is only one thing, one being this Christmas that can offer you all the joy, all the hope, all the love, all the peace that you could ever want, and it's Jesus. And so, friend, are you longing for something this Christmas more than empty and vain holiday parties and presents and performance of happiness throughout these several weeks? Then embrace Jesus. He's the realest thing there ever was. Far more than the cliche phrase that you see perhaps even around town, Jesus is the reason for the season, is Jesus is the reason for all of life. It's what the Christmas story narratives in the Bible are pointing to. It's what the angels were announcing as He was born. Announcing to the shepherds. It's who the shepherds went to see. It's who the wise men came later to see. It's who Simeon and Anna at the temple wanted to see over and over and over again. The Scriptures are heralding the arrival of Jesus and telling us, this is the one. Embrace Him. So Jesus is God. He is the Father's only beloved Son. He is the one whom the Father glorifies. He is the one sent to deliver the message of good news. And so, my friends, more than anything, anyone else this Christmas, embrace Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I cannot see I can barely understand my own heart, let alone the hearts of all gathered here this morning. And so I don't know how many in this room might be in need of embracing you as Savior and Lord for the first time ever. And I don't know how many of those who are my brothers and sisters in Christ already, having been saved, having embraced Christ are in need of this reminder to embrace Christ. Pardon me. To embrace Christ every day. All throughout Christmas and every day of the year. So whatever the state of the hearts in this room, please be gracious to us. Please work in hearts and lives. For the one or ones who are in this room and who have never turned to you in faith through Jesus, would you please draw them to yourself today? May this be the first Christmas of many to come that they enjoy in a relationship with you through Jesus. And for those who already know You, who have embraced Christ savingly, whose sins have been atoned for and dealt with on the cross, whose lives have been sealed eternally to be raised with Jesus one day for all eternity, may they be reminded that their realest hope this Christmas is Him. Not presents, not food, not 
money, not festivities, but him. That we would be reminded of these truths and refreshed by them and refocused in our walk with him. Let's take a few minutes to continue quietly in prayer together in response to God's word.